It's already been mentioned how blessed we each have been this morning to be able to gather, that the health that you and I have been given is sufficient to permit us to come together even as we are at this moment. Among those announcements that were mentioned earlier, we do want to also remember continually those who are on our sick list that they might soon, of course, be made much better. And we would also like to certainly keep in prayer uh, the John Stafford family and the passing of Miss Doris the other day. We're, we're Brother John's here this morning. We're certainly thankful and we want him to know how much that we appreciate and love him and that things will be certainly well for him in these days that, that are ahead. As you and I give thought to the title of the lesson today, The Church Done Right, it may well be that a number of things come to our mind as we contemplate what that title could mean, but I hope as we develop it, it'll be something that'll be very memorable for each of us. And so this opening slide is introductory in nature. May I direct your attention to the churches of Christ salute you, Romans 16, verse 16. The body of which you and I enjoy being a part has an ancient history, stretching, of course, back into the days of the New Testament era. You may notice then on that slide, one of the things that I know each of us is very familiar with is what's involved in being in trying to accomplish a project, maybe something around your house or some other particular means that you're striving to do in order to, to make an improvement. Well, today we're going to at least make an effort to use those concepts as a basis for appreciating some of the features of the church. The next slide will develop that thought a little bit more carefully. And in fact, some examples could perhaps be in order. I mentioned these, and you no doubt could add many additional ones. It hadn't been too many months ago that Denise and I were involved in making a busy box for Hallie. And I tell you what, you start trying to build that box and you have ideas and you realize there's screws I need that I don't have. So you have to stop and go to the store, find them, and you may have to make several trips to acquire what you need in order to build this idea that's in your project. And all that's true despite the fact you planned as well as you could have. You foresaw as nearly as you were able, and you thought that you had everything you needed. And then when you get involved in it, you realize you don't. Or maybe you've had another project, like what you'll notice on the slide. Maybe you've been involved in a project, and as you proceed to work with it, you have a sense of what's involved, but then when you get into it, it becomes far more complicated than what you imagined. I've had that happen to be a time or two. You start working on a project, and you know some electrical wiring is involved, but when you get into it, you can't hardly believe what some previous electricians have attempted to do. It's wired and nothing like what you expected, and you suddenly have to spend hours figuring out how to undo what someone else has done in an effort to accomplish what you want. Or maybe you've been in a consideration like this one. You start on some project, and maybe you work with care and great detail concerning it. You get at some point in it, and it reaches a level of complexity. It reaches a level of complication that you don't know where to go at this point. In other words, you're stuck. 
Have you ever been in a situation like that one? Here's another one. It's the last one I've listed. Have you ever been in a situation where as you proceed to work on a project, it proceeds along nicely? In fact, you complete it. And about the time you get finished, you say, you know, I wished I'd have done it this way. For now, if I had, it would suddenly be even more usable than I otherwise would have thought. I can't tell you how many times I found myself in that situation. I say all of those things to say, isn't it interesting as you undertake a project and proceed in the development of it, what things may come to pass? At the close of that slide, you'll note this. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. May I say to you that Jesus was undertaking a project. He was undertaking a masterpiece of an effort and something that would not only last in the near term, but yet would last until the end of time. I wonder if the Lord encountered any of these matters as He attempted to complete His project. Did He reach a point wherein He no longer knew which way to turn? Did He reach a point in the conclusion of it in which He said, I wished I'd have done it this way? Let's study about all of that as we develop this next slide. You'll notice one of the things I mentioned a moment ago, as you and I begin a project, it isn't that unusual to get into it and find that our knowledge is not as complete about the circumstances as we probably would wish. Consider these thoughts about the knowledge of our Lord. Could we begin perhaps in Hebrews 2 verse 9? Fairly early on in that book of Hebrews, the inspired writer pointed out that Jesus tasted death for every man. Did Jesus know from the very outset that it was going to be that way? In other words, in regard to the establishment of the church, it was going to require His death. Did He know that? Was He aware of that piece of information, even as the project was underway? Let's add to that this verse in John 10, 17. Even in His personal ministry, Jesus very emphatically said, I lay down my life of myself, and no man taketh it from me. Jesus knew very well that when He was going to give His life, in that means we recognize His crucifixion, it was His choice to voluntarily lay His life down for the sins of one and all. It was not that it, that life was forcibly taken by the Romans or even by the Jews. May I say then, these next verses should be very meaningful. To those elders of the church in Ephesus, Paul wrote in Acts twenty twenty eight, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Our Savior knew the purchase price of the church was going to require His blood. He knew that it was going to involve this, and so it's not the case that He didn't know this up front. His knowledge was complete. His knowledge was thorough. He knew everything that was going to be involved in the accomplishment of that project. Again, that's different than you and me sometimes, isn't it? These other verses perhaps bring us to note this. Our Savior, of course, knew masterfully the Old Testament. He had been a part in authoring it. 
And yet in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 and following, 750 years before Jesus was born, an ancient writer pointed out about the fact the church was going to begin in Jerusalem. Jesus must have known that. And He knew that that law of the Lord was going to go forth from the hills in Jerusalem. And so it did. To that, could we not add Isaiah 53, verses 1 and following? Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. That begins by calling to our attention the fact that Jesus again is described as a suffering servant. The work of the Messiah is pointed out in such powerful ways. If we may jump a few verses forward in that chapter, it says, He was despised. He was afflicted. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was chastised, you see, whipped and beaten for our iniquities and sins. No wonder in light of all of that, notice again the Lord's knowledge thorough. Let's close that slide like this. Jesus, understanding all of that, even gave details about the particulars of His death. In Luke 18, verses 31 to 34, He pulled the twelve aside and directly told them, The Son of Man goeth up to Jerusalem, where the Gentiles will reject Him and kill Him. He'll be mocked. He, will, in fact, will be very severely and sorely treated. And yet He'll rise again the third day. Our Lord's knowledge, you see, He did not reach a point in His efforts where He suddenly no longer knew what was going to happen. May I again say, that's very different sometimes in the way our projects develop. In Revelation 13a, He is said to be the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But what about this second point? I mentioned earlier today that as you and I undertake a project... It's not that unusual to arrive at a point in it again where you don't have the tool you need. Although you thought that you had the necessary equipment, you realize, I need this bolt, this washer, I need this particular kind of drill bit, and I don't have it. So you have to make a trip to the local hardware store, borrow it from a neighbor, or try to find some way to get around the need for it. Look at this point. Did our Savior, in the effort to establish the church, ever reach a point where He didn't have the tools He needed? Did He ever have to make a return trip to heaven for something that He didn't have? Did He ever have to make a return trip to some other source of authority? You and I know the answer to that. Let's develop it, though, with some of these scriptures that you'll notice on this slide. We might should begin in that text in which He had made the statement. It was in the coast of Caesarea Philippi that Jesus had asked of, of the apostles, Who do men say that I am? Some of them said, You're John the Baptist, and some of them Elijah, and some of them Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But the Lord said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter responded like this, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In reply, the Lord said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, as he made those statements, I'll build my church, 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The foundation upon which the Lord built His church was that true statement Peter had just made, You, Jesus, are the Christ, the Son of God. And upon that basis, every particular of the church develops. Based on that truth, everything else follows. Jesus had every piece of equipment that He needed and everything required. Look at some of these additional verses. Did you notice that the Lord selected twelve apostles? He equipped them with the power of the Holy Spirit. Did He not tell them in John 16, When I go away, I'll send the Comforter upon you, and He will lead you into all truth, John 16, 13. The Lord equipped them with everything required and everything needful for the completion of that task, the establishment of the church. For all of those reasons... It's thus easy to appreciate that you and I today still enjoy the blessed benefit of His provision. In Ephesians 1.13, every one of us who are Christians, every one of us, are promised that the Holy Spirit equips us and enables us through His Word sufficient unto every good work. You and I as Christians will never encounter a placement or a time wherein we do not have what's needed to do the work of God. It's always going to be present. I would submit that that alone is fascinating. It's rather remarkable. So far what we're learning is that when the Lord undertook His project of building the church, He did not stumble or fumble sometimes in the way that you and I do in our efforts to complete our projects. You'll notice near the close of that slide, there's a remarkable sufficiency asserted in Ephesians 1 verse 4. Speaking about the death of Christ, aren't we there told that He was slain? That is to say, even from the foundation of the world, it was in the mind of God that this one would be made available and that He would make salvation possible. These kind of ideas about the building project of Jesus perhaps brings us to a third one. A third one. I mentioned it earlier, and I suppose likely all of us have been in that situation. You're working on some project, and you reach some point in it, and you're just shocked. I just can't believe that this is turning out this way. The previous individuals working on it have put it together in a way I never expected. And now you have to really undergo some challenging thoughts of how to proceed. Was the Lord ever surprised in His efforts to establish the church? Did He ever reach a point when He was dumbfounded by what others either were doing or had done? Look at some of these verses with me. Would it be fair to say that Jesus encountered many things, not only in the lives of those apostles, but in the lives of so many others with whom He had contact during... His sojourn upon earth. I've selected just a few of them to offer to you and me for consideration. The first one being in John 12, verse number 6. You and I recall that the Lord, you see, had selected twelve apostles. One of them was a man you and I know of as Judas Iscariot. That man was a thief. Was that a surprise to Jesus? Let's face it. 
in a group of people, if what came to pass one of them was recognized as a thief, as an untrustworthy individual, it could easily cause the group to be disbanded. They might lose confidence in one another, and in the mission they were given. And the entirety of their work could come to basically nothing. Judas was that way. Did that cause the work of Christ in the future establishment of the church to come to naught? Of course it didn't. Not only was Judas a thief, he betrayed Jesus. He actually turned over his leader to the enemy. Did that cause, again, the group to lose confidence in the mission? It did not. What about Peter's denial of Jesus? When the Lord was in the very trying circumstances surrounding Gethsemane and those trials that followed it, Peter denied Him. One of His closest associates. May I, you and I know that there are many times in our day when a leader, a person in notable position, and yet when the closest of those that are with Him turn their back upon Him, it's often possible that again a great deal of chaos reigns supreme. A great deal of challenge erupts. In the case of Christ, none of those things stopped His pursuit of building the church. Not a one of them brought that to naught. Surely in that regard, you'll note about the middle of that slide. Jesus never changed His mind. Again, you and I frequently encounter circumstances wherein that can be a required matter. As the Lord sought to complete the building of the church, never once did He change His mind. Never once did He reach a point wherein this is not working, I need to do it a different way. It was always appreciable and always to be noted that the church followed the plan that had been laid out by the God of heaven. The bottom verses on that slide will call upon us to reconsider perhaps familiar passages. In Matthew 26, verses 39 and following, it was here that the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane found Himself, of course, praying so earnestly and so intently. Father, if it be Thy will, let, He said, this cup pass from Me. But isn't it still to be noted, He said, Not as I will, but as Thou wilt. It was the desire, you see, that Jesus appreciated, and He stated it so beautifully that it was the will of God that was to be done. And He knew at that point He was in the shadow of Calvary. He was in the very shadow of the cross, and He knew what was going to happen the next day. And although He prayed earnestly for the passing of that cup, He still submitted fully to the will of God. Jesus never reached a point where He had to change His mind. I suppose all of that brings us to yet another one. I know I stated this at the outset of the lesson, but it certainly would be reasonable to note it again as well. Have you ever completed a project and then you noted, I wished I had done it this way. I wish I had thought about doing it that way. Because if so, it now would make even more things easier. It would have been even more useful. Could you reflect on the church a moment? After the arduous task, the life that he lived... When the church became reality, was there ever a time we have a hint wherein the God of heaven 
and the Son, Christ Jesus, says, if only we had done it this way. Look at some of these verses with me. In John 19, verse 30, while He was hanging on the cross. While He was hanging there, spikes driven into His feet and His hands, it was then that He said, it is finished. Lord, what's finished? He wasn't just talking about His life. He was talking about the work that He was sent to do. In John 17, verses 2 to 4, He had therein made statement, Father, I have finished the work You gave me to do. Does that sound like He'd completed the project? Does it sound like He had put everything in place necessary for the actual finalization of that wonderful project? It certainly does, doesn't it? No wonder you and I notice in Acts 2, verses 1 and following, after He had died and His will was probated, you notice, sure enough, the church was established exactly as He had said that it would be. He had even told them that when the powers come upon you in Mark 9, verse 1, then you'll notice that great kingdom will follow. And when the power came on the apostles in Acts 2, verses 1 to 4, that very chapter the kingdom started. The church. Jesus, you see, had pinpointed exactly when it would be established, and thus it was. The timing was perfect. Not only was the timing perfect, Brother John read earlier today from Ephesians 5, 27, May I direct your attention to these descriptive thoughts about the church? That He might present it. What's the it? That He might present it to Himself, a glorious church. The word it refers to the church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now, there are occasions when you and I, perhaps unbeknownst to us, we have a spot of something on our clothing, perhaps from something we ate or something that gets on us, perhaps due to our work efforts. And then someone points out, you've got a spot on your coat, on your pants, on your tie. And then, of course, we can proceed to clean it. But the fact is, the spot was there. The spot indicates it is not complete or in the sense perfect in the way it was originally designed. There's something imperfect about it. Is there any spot in connection to the church? The text says no. He might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkles. Now you and I appreciate clothing without wrinkles. And maybe we even utilize an iron to make sure we rid those wrinkles because in the presentation of it, maybe we understand how presentable more it makes it. Did you notice here there's no wrinkles in the church? There's no imperfections in light of it. There's nothing in any sense inappropriate about not only what it stands for, but what its presentation is. Not only that, it says or any such thing. There are things besides wrinkles and besides spots. You and I know there could be rips or tears. There could be impropriety in other matters of presentation. Nothing like that is true of the church. No spots, no wrinkles, any such thing, but rather that it should be holy and without blemish. That word blemish indicates, again, that which tarnishes or mars or causes imperfections. 
May you and I never forget that the church as the Lord designed it. The church as the God of heaven put it in place is perfect. Its design is flawless. One more time, could we notice then in light of the project, the Lord never suffered the problems you and I can. To make a project finish and then realize, if only I had done it differently. If the church is perfect, there is no room for improvement in its design. There is no room for doing anything that might otherwise lead to a better circumstance. It is ideal. As you and I close that slide... What do some of those matters then indicate? Jesus never reached a point again when He had to abandon the plan. He never reached a point when His knowledge was insufficient. And when He finished it, it was absolutely ideal. That means, among other things, that you and I should rest so strongly upon these statements. Ephesians 4 verse 4, There is one body, with that one body being the church. And you and I can now see why. If everything worked to absolute perfection and no room for improvement, then how could there ever be another one? How could there ever be anything that could even be considered in connection to it? There's one church. Only one. Jesus said, I will build my church. He did not say churches. He did not say a multiplicity of them. He promised to build only one. And you and I notice he succeeded. And how wonderfully he did. In addition to that, the slide will close then like this. If then there is but this one blessed body that the Lord built, in sweetness and in power and in majesty, then men have cluttered things so needlessly, bringing about other organizations and other religious bodies, but it's not ones the Lord built. For He has started at a specific time, at a specific place, and with a specific mission, with a specific builder. And if all of those attributes aren't the case, then whatever that religious body is, of course, it cannot possibly be the church Jesus built. In Ephesians 4 verse 5, there is one faith. We live under such a clouded consideration in many cases Of what faith are you, someone may ask, as if there's many possibilities when the Bible says there is one faith. There's not even two. As far as the faith that please our Heavenly Father, the number is only one. How sweet it is to think then about how masterfully Jesus completed the grandest project of all time. He brought into being the perfect organization. He reigns over it as king. He is its head. Colossians 1.18 reminds us, He's the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. As we close this lesson this morning, I hope that we'll then appreciate the mastery of the Lord's building project. I know, at least if you're like me, Building projects often have so many challenges and you fail in a number of ways, either because the equipment you need is not there, you proceed and find yourself confused about something, or you complete the project and wished you'd done it differently. None of that was true of Jesus. The church was built exactly like He wanted it to be. 
and it has now stood the test of time for almost two millennia. And it shall stand until the end of time, because didn't Daniel prophesy in Daniel 2.44, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, listen, which shall never be destroyed. You see, when Jesus established the, the perfect kingdom, it's never going to suffer the whimsies and the fancies of men. Who can cloud it and destroy it? The truth of God shall allow it to march onward until our Savior returns a second time. Are you a member faithfully of that body of Christ? Have you obeyed the gospel in the wording of 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9? You see, the gospel is not merely something to give mental appreciation to. It must be believed and obeyed, the text says. If you haven't obeyed it, you realize it's the Lord who stated what's involved in that belief and in that obedience. You must believe Jesus with all of your heart to be the Son of God. You must repent of those sins. And remember, that means godly sorrow leads you to turn aside from those activities to no longer make effort to commit them. Then you confess the sweet name of Jesus as the Son of God. And following that, you're buried in baptism for the remission of your sins. It's at that time you contact the blood of Christ, you have your sins washed away, and you're then added by the Lord to that perfect building project He completed. If this very day there's someone, and that would be the need of your life, the need of your heart, please don't delay. But if may I say you have become a faithful Christian, but as of today, that isn't so. You've allowed things in life to happen, and you've behaved in ways, and you know it, others know it, and you've brought shame upon Jesus' name. You've lived in a way that you have not been the soldier of the cross that the Lord commissioned you to be. Don't you know He's begging you to come back? Just like the prodigal son, to come back home. If you'd like to do that today, we'd be delighted to pray for you. Upon your repentance and your confession, the Lord has promised to forgive you. His building project stands firm today, and I hope each of us appreciate, perhaps like never before, the mastery of how great a project that was and still is. And if we could be of encouragement to you today, if we could help you in your response, we'd love to do it while together we stand and while we sing.